I V M. In the 400th year after the Buddha's Nirvana, a man called Kanishka ascended the throne and ruled the whole of India. He had no faith in either crime or religious merit, and he made light of the law of Buddha. One day, when he was out hunting, he chased for hours after a white hare, but in a cluster of trees, the hare disappeared, and the king saw a little boy making a small mud pile there. "What are you making?" said the king. "I am making a stupa here," said the boy. The king laughed, for he had heard of a prophecy that the Buddha had made. that a great king who ruled india would build a stupa to him 400 years after his death that is a marvelous idea child he boomed and he built a stupa over 400 feet high decorated with banners and gold and i saw nothing to compare to it in beauty and grandeur in all my travels the story you've just heard was recounted by a chinese pilgrim who walked the silk roads and visited gandhara and northern india 200 years after this king kanishka decided that he was the man referred to in the buddha's supposed prophecy but where was his stupa built who was this kanishka where did he come from and what drove him to create a monument so splendid that it drew pilgrims from all over the world a creation that should surely have ranked among the wonders of the ancient world this is the story of the mightiest of the kushana monarchs who presided over a vast multi-ethnic wealthy and globalized empire in the 2nd century CE this also is the story of life in this place the story of the birth of the gods that indians would worship for millennia afterwards and of perhaps the most glorious moment in buddhist indian history when stupas and viharas stretched from afghanistan to tamilakam i am anirudh kanesetti and this is echoes it's the 2nd century ce and you and i are standing in a crowd in the city of purushapura the city of men which is modern peshawar in pakistan It is a chilly morning and most of the crowd is wearing thick shawls over which they've draped heavy jewelry of gold and beads which glitter in the pale dawn light. Some are fair with pale eyes though most are dusky like us. Some wear fashionable roman looking attire, some in more traditional greco-indian dresses that seem familiar to us like someone merged a tunic with a sari. The hairstyles are fantastic. Both men and women wear jewels in their hair. Some women wear veils covered in sequins, while others have their hair piled up elaborately in fantastic fashions that won't look out of place in Rome. Towards the front of the crowd, the men wear thick felt trousers and patterned silk robes with gold belts, along with pointed hats that must have come from Central Asia. We hear chanting and the slow clanging of bells. Around the corner, on a beautiful evenly paved road dotted with pavilions, we see a procession led by a stocky man with black eyes that glow like burning coals. This is Kanishka, king of the Kushanas. Cheers break out. 
Kanishka's face is the color of dull gold, his hair black and straight, as are his sideburns, though his chin is clean-shaved. He, like the aristocrats in front of the crowd, wears trousers, robes and a belt, but these are made of gorgeous silk and patterned with Indian swans. His belt is made of thick gold, as is the three-layered crown that rests on his elongated forehead. He walks solemnly, surrounded by chanting monks who wave incense burners decorated with West Asian motifs. In his hands is a casket of gilded bronze with an image of the Buddha and two respectful gods attached to the top. That casket contains precious relics of the Buddha himself, obtained at tremendous expense during Kanishka's campaigns deep in the Gangetic Plains. As the king draws nearer, we see that an image of him is carved onto the casket as well. He is being crowned by gods, and we briefly meet his smoldering eyes. It's obvious that he considers himself to be a divine king, and to him, Buddha is just another divinity to use to support his power. Now the procession moves past us. It moves into a massive enclosure with a tall pillar crowned by a lion at each of the corners, a style that Kanishka picked up from legends of the ancient Emperor Ashoka, who once ruled over Gandhara from his capital in Magadha in the eastern Ganga Valley. There, a Kushana commander now rules in Kanishka's name. But like Ashoka, Kanishka too intends to be remembered as a mighty conqueror, and if that means patronizing Buddhism, then so be it. Deep in the earth at the center of the enclosure is a secret grotto where he will deposit the sacred casket. And over the years to come, as Kanishka's conquests spread across North India into Afghanistan and beyond to Tajikistan and Xinjiang in modern China, his wealth will sponsor the greatest stupa that the world will ever see. It will be gilded with gold and precious gems, with fantastic carvings and panels, resounding with the sound of bronze bells and bedecked with banners and prayer flags brought to it by the thousands of pilgrims who will come to it by foot from all over the world. It was crowned with 25 parasols of bronze, representing the many heavens beyond which lay the infinite expanse of the Buddha's enlightenment a physical embodiment of that great event which had changed the course of Indian and human history in so many ways. Kanishka's stupa would stand for centuries and be repaired over and over until finally toppled by an earthquake at a time when Buddhism and Gandhara would itself be dying hundreds of years later. But today, Kanishka doesn't know that or care. To him, the stupa is meant to cement his relations with the powerful Buddhist Sangha and bring to his city donations, pilgrims and trade. It is merely one gleaming star in a constellation of hundreds of cities, hundreds of thousands of diverse people who owe allegiance to the might of his Kushana Empire, the most pivotal and powerful political formation of the Indian subcontinent since the fall of the Mauryan Empire over 500 years ago. 
The Kushana Empire is an inexplicably forgotten Indian state, perhaps because it doesn't fit into our modern ideas of what national history means, because in our modern conception of it, our heritage is only confined to what happened within the random borders of contemporary nation-states. These days, we seem to think that if something happened beyond our borders, then it can't really have been relevant to our ancestors. We forget that our ancestors won't have recognized modern national boundaries and identities. They moved around, going about their own lives, and we only showed up later and told ourselves, okay, this part of history is ours now, and that part of history is theirs, and we don't care about it. Well, to put it bluntly, the Kushanas are going to be a very rude shock to anybody who sees history that way. In the last episode of this podcast, we saw the Kushanas coming south of the Hindu Kush, and consolidating their control over Gandhara, Afghanistan, and bits of North India. And we saw that though they were Central Asians, they had no problem with taking on Indian titles and Indian ideas of kingship. In this, they were just an example of how experimental and interconnected the ancient world actually was. In fact, no less innovative, creative, and pragmatic than we are today, really. Take, for example, Kanishka Stupa, all kinds of fancy legends are told about it. The story of Kanishka meeting the little boy, for example. But Kanishka wasn't actually the first king to build a stupa on that spot. In fact, he wasn't even the first Kushana king to have that idea. His grandfather had built a stupa there. And interestingly, he's supposed to have used architectural styles similar to that used by the Romans, who were building a tomb for the first emperor Augustus at roughly the same time. That tomb still stands in Rome today, by the way. It seems that within a few decades, the Kushanas were not only aware of what was happening in Europe, but were also capable of readapting it for their own needs and tailoring it to local cultures and religions. And now, unfortunately for the Kushanas, the ancient world was never the most politically stable place. And at some point while they were busy trying to conquer the Gangetic Plains and trying to capture Mathura, that Romanesque stupa was burned down. But why on earth were they trying to capture Mathura in the first place? In fact, the name of Mathura has popped up a bunch of times in this podcast, especially in episode 2, for example. We saw the Indo-Greeks ally with it. We saw the Indo-Scythians, the Shakas, conquer it and build monasteries in it. And now we see the Kushanas after it as well. Why? Simply put, Mathura fulfilled a similar purpose then to Delhi in the 17th and 18th centuries, which brings me to the question of how geopolitics works. Geography is absolutely crucial to human history. Geography impacts economic development. Economic development goes hand in hand with political competition. We saw how the South Indian Peninsula made it the ideal midway point between the trading hubs of the Mediterranean and East Asia. Similarly, We've also seen how Gandhara was perfectly located at the intersection of South Asian, West Asian, and Central Asian trade routes. The thing is, in the broader course of human history, Gandhara is very much an exception. It's weird. It's rare to see a wealthy region that manages to retain its independence from multiple competing powers, especially when we're talking about powers like North India, Iran, and Central Asia it's much more normal to see one or the other of these powers dominating it. So initially, Gandhara was ruled by small local kingdoms, 
then by the Persian Empire, and then by the Mauryan Empire of North India. So how did Gandhara not only manage to keep its independence, but under the Kushana Empire, actually dominate the other regions? The simple answer is migration and political competition. We saw that the collapse of the Mauryan state led to the evolution of small, strong kingdoms in North India, which were busy fighting with each other and simply didn't have the resources to capture Gandhara by themselves. In Iran, meanwhile, the Parthian Empire was busy competing with the Romans to the west and was therefore too busy to take over Gandhara. Into this vacuum of sorts came Central Asian nomads who captured Gandhara, securing its power and independence from both regions. And in time, Gandhara gave them and their excellent cavalry armies the wealth and resources needed to take on North India. It wasn't an easy process though, and as we've seen, many tribes came and went, all going first to Gandhara and then to Mathura. Because just as Gandhara was the critical trading hub through which you could launch expeditions into South Asia in general, Mathura was the critical trading hub through which one could launch expeditions into the Gangetic heartland of North Indian kingdoms. Mathura was where trade routes from the Deccan and the Gangetic plains met the route going into Gandhara. Here, Buddhists, Jains, Brahminists, Zoroastrians and dozens of minor cults gathered to seek patronage. And since the most ancient antiquity, as we saw in the very first episode of this podcast, Mathura had been associated with the hero god Vasudeva Krishna. It was among the most prestigious and sacred sites of the Indian subcontinent, thanks to geography, politics and culture. And so, it was a prize for every Central Asian conqueror who controlled Gandhara and wanted to expand into North India. Control of Mathura alone wasn't a guarantee of success. Vima, Kanishka's father who showed up in the last episode, managed to gain control of Mathura only to have his father's stupa at Peshawar burnt. But since the Kushanas also had a strong foothold in Central Asia and Afghanistan, they could always get the resources and manpower they needed to try again and again and again until they succeeded. And Kanishka was able to do exactly that. Under him, Bactria, Gandhara and Mathura all became core regions of the Kushana Empire. And since he now controlled three critical points along the ancient world's most critical trade route, is it any wonder that the Kushanas became, almost overnight, one of the great powers of the ancient world? But Anirudh, I hear you say, how on earth did you say that Mathura is like Delhi? They're in completely different areas. Looks like you didn't know as much about geopolitics as you think you do, you smartass. Such impatience. Remember how I said that Gandhara was an exception, not the rule? It was only capable of staying independent because of political fragmentation and other geographies. Well, by the 3rd century CE, the Sasanian dynasty of Iran had managed to consolidate Persia. Similarly, by the 4th century CE, supported by broader political, cultural and religious changes, the Gupta dynasty managed to consolidate North India, which we'll see very soon in this podcast, I promise. And then, both of them attacked and ate Gandhara like it was a sandwich. In the process, the ancient world's most remarkably globalized region vanished. After that point, South Asia and West Asia developed relatively stable political formations, and so the geographical key to South Asia moved from Mathura further north, 
a midpoint sorts between Gandhara and the Gangetic Plains. This area, first Thanesar, then Kannauj, then Delhi, remained as critical to medieval and early modern history as Mathura had been to the ancients. Just as Mathura was a prize for the rulers of Gandhara, Delhi became a prize to those who came from Afghanistan. As you can see, history has patterns. Oh dear, I think I've strayed from my topic. I can feel Kanishka's cold black eyes burning at me from beyond the grave. Young rascal, you were telling my story which nobody has heard. Will you give up on Delhi already? Everyone knows about it. Time for them to learn about my awesomeness instead. Forgive me, Shahanshah, but if modern Indians are to respect you, they need context. Now back to your story, of course. Let's rewind to the second century when the glorious Kanishka rules over the mighty empire of the Kushanas and everything is great, especially if you're a Kushana. Let's not talk about the cities that Kanishka must have sacked to build that gorgeous stupa in Peshawar. So, Kanishka's stupa was built to commemorate his own power, not only as a Kushana monarch, but also as an Indian one. He clearly seemed to be aware of India's own history and heritage, and wanted to pretend that he was re-establishing it. The stupa was just one part of a broader political and cultural shift that was taking place in India at the time, something that we'll discuss in detail in the next episode. And Kanishka's conquest, ironically, laid the basis for the shift in the first place. Listen to him boast on an inscription near his family's dynastic shrine as Surk Khotal in Afghanistan, which we touched upon in the last episode. The year one of Kanishka, the great deliverer, the righteous, the just, the autocrat, the god worthy of worship, who has obtained the kingship from Nana and from all the gods, who has established the year one as the gods pleased. In the year one, it has been proclaimed unto India, unto the city of Ozeno, Ujjain, and the city of Zageda, Saketa, and the city of Kozambo, Koshambi, and the city of Palobotro, Pataliputra, and as far as the city of Ziritambo, Sri Champa. All the rulers of India have submitted to the will of the king. I, King Kanishka, command the master of the city to make this Nana sanctuary. And I order you to make images and likenesses of these kings. For King Kujala Kadfaisis, our great-grandfather. And for our grandfather, the Soma Sacrificer. And for King Vima Kadfaisis, our father. And for ourself, King Kanishka. Think about this. In the last episode, we saw how India was developing its own indigenous ideas of divine kingship, drawing on the authority of the Vedas and Brahmins. But the Kushanas, remarkably, chose to sidestep that. Instead, they actually created their own form of divine kingship using Zoroastrian gods and mixed them with the tradition of worshipping their own ancestors, possibly because they wanted to retain political and religious authority in their own right without becoming too dependent on Buddhism or Brahmanism. At the same time, the Kushanas were not opposed in principle to using Indian ideas, 
especially to administer this vast, far-flung empire of theirs. They appointed local military governors with Indian titles such as Mahadandanayaka, Great Lord of the Rod, who were responsible for civilian administration as well. In Indian political thinking, the Rod or Danda is necessary to whack evildoers who would otherwise go about troubling innocent citizens, and so the governors would have been recognizable to Kanishka's Indian subjects. But these appointees themselves were often of Kushana descent, probably nobles with direct ties to the royal dynasty itself. But what about the Indian ruling classes? How did Kanishka force all the violent, fractious, competing states of North India to bend to his will? Conquest alone was not enough. Kanishka, you see, was a master of political propaganda. His father Vima, who had made the Kushanas wealthy through trade and conquest, had started to issue gold coins, and Kanishka kept doing that as well. And what is a gold coin but a masterful little advertisement for the king that you can carry in your pocket? On Kanishka's coins are images of him elaborately dressed, his arms glowing with divine fire, and on the other side are different gods. So many gods! Gods such as Mahasenapati, the great general, a war god who later merged with Indian traditions to become Kumara, son of Shiva. Shiva himself appears as Oesho. Buddha appears as Bodho. Kanishka, in his coins, was all things to all religions. It was in his interest, after all, to let Buddhists pretend that he was a Buddhist, since they were an immensely powerful group in the Indian subcontinent. And it was also in his interest to let them call him a second Ashoka, because that connected him to an ancient native Indian king that he knew that Indians respected. But Kanishka also had subjects from other parts of the world, and he traded closely with Persia. So on his coins, he called himself Shahinshah, which is exactly why I've called this episode a Buddhist Shahinshah. And what were these coins called? Dinaras, because the Kushanas were closely trading with the Romans, whose coin was called the Denarius. Thanks to the Kushanas, Dinars would remain a form of currency in Asia for centuries after. In this episode, I've only scratched the surface of how deeply the Kushanas impacted Indian culture and thinking. But we're out of time, for now. This is the first of a two-part series on the transition from ancient to early medieval India. Kanishka's experiment with creating a cosmopolitan empire in India would reach a pinnacle under his successors. Tune in next week to see the development of the ideas that would shape our history for all the centuries thereafter. If you like this podcast, why not leave us a rating and review? And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. While you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments on this episode of Echoes, I'm at Ekanisetti on Twitter and at Anirudha Devaraya on Instagram.